There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Anand G, who's going to talk to us about his book, Winners Take All. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Sam's a little different on this episode because he was traveling, but you will hear his news nonetheless. And the message that's been on my mind has been a piece of advice that I heard in the boxing community, and it was never cover your eyes. And I think about that a lot when I think about the work that we're in, which is often work that's rooted in some sort of confrontation or challenge, that the temptation to look away, the temptation to just take a break, to put your head down, is sometimes so great because you get so weary. But in this work, we can't ever take our eyes off of either the thing we're fighting for or the thing we're fighting against. That the moment that we take our eyes off of who is on the other side of the battle, we actually start to lose sight of like their tactics and their strategies. And remember, they're always watching us. They know how we've moved for so long. And that was just on my mind. Never cover your eyes. Let's go. Hey, it's Sam Sinyangwe. And today I want to talk about a particular bill that passed the U.S. House of Representatives last week. It's called the Community Safety and Security Act of 2018, otherwise known as H.R. 6691. Here's why it's important. This bill, if signed into law, would reclassify a number of nonviolent crimes to be violent crimes. And that includes things like fleeing from a law enforcement officer. Let me repeat. Fleeing, trying to get away from a law enforcement officer, would now be classified as a violent crime. Not only that, but conspiracy to commit any of these acts, fleeing, burglary of an unoccupied home, which tends to be considered a property crime, but would be a violent crime under this bill, and a number of other offenses, uh, conspiracy to commit those acts would also be considered a violent conspiracy. So you don't even have to commit the act, but even if you conspired to do so, it would be considered a violent conspiracy. So this does two things. The first is that this impacts immigration. Because if you are an immigrant in this country, a lawful permanent resident, and you are convicted of a quote-unquote crime of violence, that means that the federal government can deport you. And so what this bill does is it expands the range of crimes that are considered crimes of violence to make more immigrants, lawful permanent residents uh, who are here, subject to deportation. The second thing that this bill does is it illustrates an emerging strategy from Republicans in opposition to many of the criminal justice reforms that we've seen take place. Because so many of those reforms have tended to focus on, quote-unquote, nonviolent offenders, in particular nonviolent drug offenders. And because the conversation has been so limited to that particular population, so many folks have been left out of the conversation people who've been convicted of violent crimes. And that is, you know, about half of the prison population who've been left out of, you know, for example, when we're considering legislation on who should be eligible for good time credits, where sentencing reform is taking place or being considered and who would be eligible uh, for a reduced sentence. 
uh, even access to you know programs, early release, compassionate release, and other programs to get out of prison early. Uh, you wouldn't be eligible if you were a violent offender. And so what this shows is that to the extent that the conversation only results in legislation that benefits people who are quote-unquote nonviolent offenders, then what Republicans are going to do is try to change the definition of what is a nonviolent offense and what's a violent offense so that fewer and fewer people will actually be eligible for the benefits of those reforms. So moving forward, Stay woke, pay attention to these bills. You may not have heard that this was happening in the U.S. House of Representatives, but it did pass. It passed in less than two weeks from the time it was introduced. They're trying to move this through very quickly. Make sure this doesn't pass the Senate. And also pay attention to how we're talking about and how these issues of criminal justice reform are being discussed and whether or not they exclusively center, quote unquote, nonviolent offenders in ways that are problematic, that leave out you know, half the prison population, and that creates an opening uh, for opponents of criminal justice reform to simply move the goalposts on what is a nonviolent offense and what's a violent offense so that fewer and fewer people will actually be eligible for those benefits. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Yeti on all social media. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. I, I, I. Ooh, boom, Brittany. Okay, okay. Look at you singing it. Right. I was like, is this an R&B song? Brittany got it that time. I was a little slow on the draw with the I, I, I. Brittany out here, the new member of TLC. Oh, snap. Yes. You're not a scrub either. So we have, we have to write a new song for I, I, I. I hope I am not a scrub. That is my, that is one of my life goals, <laughs> not to be a scrub. <laughs> and this is Dre at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Now, Sam, who we love, is traveling. You have already heard his news because we had to make sure that he is a part of the episode because his news is sort of wild this week, as it is most weeks. We want to talk about the news that you don't know, and Sam is intimately a part of that. So, Sam, we love you. Young genius Sam. Hey, Clint, I heard a rumor that your time in the virtual line to see Hamilton was successful, and you saw it this weekend. Fam, oh my God. This show, it's just, it's one of those things. So, I've listened to the Hamilton soundtrack for three and a half years, right? Since the <laughs> the show came out, I've been a Hamilton stan. I've like created an entire show in my mind. And, and it's been amazing. The problem is that I was slightly worried going into the show that, that the actual show wouldn't be as good as the one that I created in my head based on the soundtrack. But, and, and, and generally I'm like skeptical of things that have, I gotten a whole, whole lot of hype. I'm like, okay, I'm sure this is good, but like, there's no way <laughs> this can be as good as everybody says. But like, I went to the show, me and my wife, and we sat there and like one, we like basically know all the words by heart. And, and it was just, it was amazing. It was, it was w- one of the most remarkable, if not the best theater production that I've ever seen. Um, I can't explain what it meant to see a whole cast of people of color in these roles um, and to see it in person brought the the play to life and brought the songs to life in a way that that simply can't be replicated um, in any other other context. So um, I, you know, shout out to Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're a genius, homie. Like it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, I feel deeply moved. I feel deeply inspired. I think just like as an artist, like witnessing a piece of art that is clearly going to be with us for for decades moving forward and is going to have profound impacts on on many different people. Um, I, I was very moved and and just and just proud. And I saw my homie, my homie Carvin's Lasant, 
uh, who's a poet that I came up with when we were younger, um, played George Washington, and he was incredible. And okay. it was amazing to see this person that I've known for uh, for like ten years to be just like kill it in this role. And um, so it was it was an amazing amazing day all around, and it was just great. I think I'm the only person left in the crew now that hasn't seen it. And I haven't listened to the soundtrack because I want to experience it all for the first time together. And, you know, last time we talked about this, I like asked, I asked the people to help me see Hamilton and it hasn't happened yet. One day. People, somebody give Britney a ticket. You know, Clint, I talked about this uh, the first time I saw it, but I had the same experience. I saw it and I was like, this is infinitely better than even what I heard people say, which was shocking to me. And, you know, I still feel like we should like open up all the theaters and make sure that people, everybody can see it. Because not only was it just exceptional theater, but I learned so much. I'm like, what was going on in my history class? Like, why didn't I know this about Aaron Burr? Like, why didn't I know this about Lafayette? Like, Mm -hmm. I walked away and was just like, I get it, you know? And I also, it was catchy, you know? I'm like, in the room where it happened, the room where it happened. Like, I loved it. And Brittany, I can't wait for you to see it too. Yeah, and I think, you know, and we've all talked about this, and it's not necessarily the fault of Hamilton. It's kind of the nature of the 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 medium. Um, you know, these yeah. tickets are, are really expensive. And my hope is that... Uh, more uh, working class folks and and people who might not have the sort of resources uh, get to experience this sort of thing because uh, I you know I was me and my wife were in there and and there were not a whole lot of people who looked like us um, which which is unfortunate and uh, and something that I know Lin Manuel cares deeply about and the rest of the Hamilton cast and and folks. Uh, care deeply about and that they're working toward. And I know they have an incredible education program, bringing public school kids in, which is phenomenal. Uh, and, and, you know, the hope is that as it continues to grow, as it inevitably will, the ticket prices will become um, less expensive and, and there will be other opportunities for, for folks to see it. So, you know, it, what you're saying about it being a challenge and a fault of the medium and of that industry period is, is true, right? I think it's, we can't pin this on on one production. Um, and I remember I went to see Fences on Broadway when Viola and Denzel were starring in it before they made the film. And, you know, we got our tickets and trekked up from D.C. I think at the time I was, I think I might have been working on the Hill. So I certainly was not rich by any stretch of the imagination. Um, right. But like saved money, got the tickets, went up to New York to see it myself a former boyfriend who is black and a friend of ours who is white. And I was really pleasantly surprised to see just how many black people in particular uh, were able to be in the space. And, you know, during intermission was talking to some people and they had very similar stories to ours, right? Like saved some money, made the trip because they really felt like they had to experience this once in a lifetime thing um, with these powerhouses on stage performing a play that, um, you know, in the canon of August Wilson is one of the more famous ones, but most certainly he is a playwright that people need much more exposure to. And so I, I, I found myself like really happy in that moment. I also found myself realizing that we should have told our friend maybe a little bit more information about how largely black audiences consume <laughs> content because there was a lot of <laughs> right. like talking back to the, <laughs> to the stage, like we were in the movies and he was like upset a little bit. And it was like, mm, this is the culture. Like if you're going to be a part of it, <laughs> you're welcome, but you got to be part of it. But I'm, you know, I'm hoping that more theater audiences look like that more often. 
You know, I'm also hopeful that we will see a different outcome um, as history seems to be repeating itself in the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Obviously, we talked a few weeks ago about just how dangerous a nominee he is, just how problematic it is that so much of his record, uh, especially his time in the Bush White House, has been sealed and not been seen by the people who we elect to vet uh, people who are up for lifetime appointments. Um, but a woman named Christine Blasey Ford, as I'm sure you know, has come out and has accused Brett Kavanaugh of essentially molesting her uh, in high school. Um, and that kind of sexual misconduct, sexual abuse uh, is something that should be taken seriously by every single person in the country, especially every single senator that will be voting on the nomination of this man um, and the people who set the rules, right? And I honestly don't believe that we should be having a vote anytime soon if this kind of accusation is out there. But I'm thinking so much in this moment about Anita Hill, and that's what I mean by history repeating itself. We remember the days of Anita Hill so bravely speaking up, not just as a woman, but also as a woman of color and as a law professor, doing so at great risk and cost to her future and her career, and standing up and talking about the ways in which Clarence Thomas, who is then, of course, a nominee, um, harassed her in the workplace. Of course, Clarence Thomas became Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and I'm hoping that we have a different kind of outcome here, not just in the nomination process, but in the way that Christine Blasey Ford is treated. Anita Hill suffered such incredible degradation and humiliation at the hands of an all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, at the hands of the media, and in the court of public opinion. Um, And I'm just hoping that we've actually made some progress since then. Right now, judging from some of the comments I'm seeing, it's not looking all that good, Um, but I'm going to keep hope alive and commit this one to both prayer and action. Yeah, Brittany, I I completely agree. Uh, I think these allegations are incredibly disconcerting, uh, incredibly unsettling, and and certainly warrant uh, a full sort of process and and, and a full investigation. And, uh, you know, we are... In a in a moment in which this man is being, uh, as you kind of talked about, like potentially put in a lifetime position in arguably the most powerful job that one can be assigned to, uh, and I don't think that there is any reason, uh, morally, politically, uh, to to rush his uh, his nomination through, and uh, it would be a disservice to. Uh, to the woman who has made this accusation, uh, and it would be a disservice to uh, the importance of the position and the sort of judiciousness we need to demonstrate as we move through this process. And let's remember that this is a lifetime appointment. And, you know, some people are like, well, you know, we don't know if it was really that serious. It's like, this is such an important job. And remember, we can find somebody who has not sexually assaulted somebody. That is like a a totally reasonable bar that to be appointed to the court, you have not sexually assaulted somebody in the past. And there's so much about Kavanaugh that we don't know. We don't know about his time as staff secretary. Uh, these allegations have just surfaced. Like there's no need to rush this process given how important the position is. So as we record this, there are millions of people who are uh, either currently experiencing 
uh, Hurricane Florence or who have been left in its wake uh, and who will be experiencing the process of, of attempting to rebuild. And something that always comes up in these conversations around uh, hurricanes and, and evacuations and mandatory evacuations and who comes and who goes or who decides to stay and try to ride out the storm and who doesn't decide to stay. And I'm saying decide in air quotes um, are these these conversations about you know, if there's an evacuation, why don't people just leave? I don't understand. Why would anybody stay? And as someone who's from New Orleans and experienced Katrina firsthand uh, and who's thought about this both personally and politically, uh, I think it's really important for people to to sort of slow down in the way that they often uh, create caricatures of folks who decide to stay or, or impute assumptions onto people who are staying in places that are about to be struck by hurricanes. And and something that I thought was done really well is a New York Times op-ed by uh, Dr. Nicole Stevens, who's a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And in a study, she and her collaborators conducted a psychological study of Hurricane Katrina survivors and relief workers, uh, and also Americans who watched the disaster from afar. And what they found was that outside observers, even relief workers who were providing aid, viewed those who evacuated as self-reliant, hardworking, and instead, on the flip side, denigrated those who stayed behind by calling them lazy and negligent and stubborn. And these ideas, as Stephen outlines in, in her study and in this piece, sort of presume that everyone in harm's way has a clear ability to leave, when the reality is that many people lack reliable transportation and resources and money for gas and a hotel room. Uh, and many people don't even have close friends or family to stay with outside of the hurricane-threatened areas. Um, and oftentimes, the those with sort of lower, uh, on the lower ends of economic mobility and economic opportunity, those folks tend to be uh, sort of saturated in specific communities and they don't necessarily have family spread out all across the country in ways that are, are accessible. Additionally, and perhaps most compellingly, uh, in the study, the average annual income of people who stayed was only $19,500 uh, and only 50% of the, the people who stayed had a car. And that's compared to 100% of the people who left, right? So so here's like very real empirical evidence of the, the economic realities that shape whether or not someone decides to go or decides to stay. And to be clear, I think that we have to be sort of nuanced and careful in the way that we talk about this, because I think it's important to both acknowledge the sort of economic uh, limitations that people are experiencing based on their own socioeconomic status. But sometimes that can turn into a sort of patronizing narrative that sort of strips people of their agency. Uh, and, you know, there are, of course, some people who do have the option to, le to leave, but decide to stay. And, and But I think we have to put that in conversation with the very real, again, sort of financial realities that shape uh, people's decisions to to go or not go, and and lastly, the daily, the New York Times uh, daily podcast had a really remarkable story last week about uh, it was remarkable and heartbreaking about uh, a family who who was not able to leave uh, the storm in in Houston um, last year, and I encourage everyone to listen to it because it really humanizes the the struggle that so many people are experiencing. Um, when they decide to stay, uh, in, especially when it comes to having to stay in the context of, of circumstances beyond your control. So there are a lot of things I thought about when I when I thought about this, Clint. Thanks for bringing it up. I read that op-ed the other day, and, I, and it really gave language to things that I sort of believed before, but 
but hadn't thought through. So I think about four big assumptions that I made when we talk about people's ability to evacuate. One is that people have a place to go and uh, you, you brought that up, but there, you know, where do you, does everybody have somewhere that can take them in for, you know, more than one night or even one night or them and their family. The second is that do you have resources for travel? Like, do you have enough money for gas or snacks in the car? Like those sort of things, which aren't insignificant. Do you have resources for when you arrive to the place you're going to go? So like clothes, that sort of stuff. And then do you have resources to sustain yourself? So money, uh, medicine, those sort of things. And for some people, staying put is actually one of the better options for people in the way they think about this calculation. So Uh, You know, that made sense to me as I read this piece and heard you talk about it, Clint. You know, this is another trope in the long characterization of the morality of poverty, of identity, et cetera. There are so many ways in which we assign blame and shame to people for having to make the most and best of the circumstances in which they live and who have the agency to decide what is best for them or what at least appears best for them, given all information. I think it's also significant to recognize that, as we've talked about, a lot of people stay so that they can help other people. And there's a nobility in that, that when we shame people for making a choice different than we would have made, that nobility gets ignored. But this happens all the time when we talk about poverty and we judge what people spend their money on. This happens all the time when we talk about people who are unemployed and we cast aspersions on why we believe they're unemployed. This happens all the time when we talk about people with marginalized identities. This happens all the time when we talk about people with disabilities. This happens all the time when we talk about people who need health care, that we blame people for their circumstance or we assess some kind of moral bankruptcy that leads them down a path that we simply can't understand. And it's better to just ask questions, lead with curiosity and love and say, hey, I'm not fully understanding this because chances are the perspective you have is limited and requires a great deal of expansion. The other thing that I'd add, um, Brittany, is this conversation about like what solutions look like. So, so we know the challenges around evacuation and we know the assumptions that people make is that there are a set of solutions. It's, you know, when we ask people to evacuate, uh, there could be vouchers that allow them uh, a place to go that makes sense, that provides people with a set of resources. So when they evacuate, they are prepared and adequately equipped uh, that provides for fuel and gas to not assuming that everybody just has a means to evacuate and that the people who don't evacuate somehow don't take the threat serious or don't take their situation serious. So recently, the Education Trust put out a report on so-called free college programs that exist in a little over a dozen states. What the Education Trust did is actually establish eight criteria that have a particular focus on equity. NPR reported on the results of this report last week. And what we essentially find is that free college is, in fact, not all that free, and not necessarily all that accessible by the very people who need it the most. So some of the criteria that they looked at included whether or not the program covers four years of tuition, uh, whether it covers a bachelor's degree at a four-year institution, if it helps low-income students, if it includes adults and returning students, if there's not a college GPA requirement above 2.0 or a C average, um, if it allows students to enroll half-time, and if the grant doesn't convert to a loan if certain 
certain criteria isn't met. So those are the criteria that they looked at. And what they found is that in the states that purport to have a free college program under some name or auspice, there is actually no state that satisfies all eight of those equity-based criteria. The state of Washington comes closest with their college-bound scholarship, although that scholarship does not include adult and returning students. There are a few other states like Hawaii and Indiana that fall short on two metrics but satisfy the rest of them. Um, there is some good news. Places like Indiana actually start with their 21st Century Scholars Program all the way in seventh grade to try to increase access. And then there are places like Oregon that only cover, for example, two years of education, which means that it only applies to community college settings. This is, I think, an incredibly important report in and of itself, but it's also a model of what it means to bring an equity lens to everything that we do. And it was interesting because when this report was put out and NPR reported on it, Part of the pushback came from people who call themselves progressives, who call themselves liberal, but essentially accused Education Trust and John King, who is the former secretary of education and now runs Ed Trust, of some kind of swift boating, of coming against Democratic governors and state legislatures that pass these kinds of programs um, and actually causing harm to the programs. What we have to recognize is the difference between efficiency and sufficiency. It is faster, I'm very sure, and in a lot of cases, much cheaper to create the kind of programming that has been created thus far. But if that programming is insufficient and that free college is not actually free for everyone or accessible by everyone, then the solutions are not actually something that are creating freedom and equity and access for all people. That is what we should be focused on. It doesn't make the solutions weaker to focus on equity. It does not make the solutions weaker to focus on how the most marginalized will be impacted and question whether or not they can actually access this. This is what it means to interrogate even the best solutions to make sure that they are accessible by all people. Yeah, and just briefly, I'm really glad you you brought this up, Brittany, because I think it pushed my thinking and, and push my understanding of a lot of these policies in in important ways that I hadn't fully understood or, or even conceptualized. And and I think what's interesting, and as, as they talk about in this article, is that the problem with need-blind access, for example, um, and Tiffany Jones from the Ed Trust talks about this, is that often it results in more money being given to students who don't actually need it as compared to the low-income participants in these programs who are ostensibly supposed to be getting it. And that's in part because some of these programs scale back state aid to students who get additional help from something like a federal Pell Grant. Uh, and and Jones talks about, and, and I thought that this was a really helpful frame, how we don't want to buy into the idea of free college, but in reality, we're spending all this money on unwelly students and and students who don't necessarily need the assistance. And then, you know, when money runs out 10, 15 years from now, People are looking back and saying like, oh, what happened? Did this help the students that we were actually targeting? And so, you know, to your latter point, I think it is essential that we are interrogating even the programs and, and perhaps especially the programs that are coming from folks who who may have, be well-intentioned and who have the same sort of progressive vision um, that we do, but to make sure that it's actually serving the students who, who it should be serving um, across uh, all of these different programs and all of these different policies and this is about equity, as you said, and and it deserves uh, the most uh, the scrutiny that we can that we can provide. 
Yeah, Brittany, I, this is one of those things where like, you know, I had never even thought about this. Like people said free college and I was like, oh, free college. Like they, I don't know, like the, when I had thought about it, it was like, you know, I know that there's so many programs across the country where like if you have a certain GPA in high school that you like automatically might get into the community college or like a local university and that it's paid for. I hadn't thought deep enough, it seems, about like what does paid for actually mean. So like you talk about like you, you're right, you you get your tuition paid for, but you can't afford any books. It's like you actually aren't in college, right? Like that makes a lot of sense. Or like if it's only restricted to, to high school seniors and like, you know, if you are returning to college and can't benefit from the program or if you did, you graduated from high school, took a couple of years off and want to go to college and you're not eligible then, then like, is that really free college? So this was a reminder that even the policy positions that we, you know, we agree with, it doesn't mean that we can just let up on pressing what the details are. And I was actually shocked that it took anybody this long to uncover this like this, you know, free college has been a, some of these programs are relatively old, you know, they're not like two years old and to have not read anything about this until recently. I was actually surprised. I learned a lot in this one. Okay, my news is about North Carolina's uh, congressional map. So uh, the North Carolina congressional map was so bad that it got struck down by a court before because it was clearly found to have been racist and gerrymandered. And the court has said that it needs to be redrawn. But what the news recently has reported is that uh, it will not be redrawn before the 2018 election. So it's clear that the map is problematic, that it is gerrymandered, that the North Carolina map gives Republicans two to three additional seats in Congress through gerrymandering. Like it's not equitably drawn, but because of the timing, it won't be redrawn before the election. So it's hard. We're, like North Carolina is in the position where like we know what the outcome is going to be in 2018. Like we know what the outcome will likely be because that's why they drew the districts to look like this. And it's a reminder that some of the people that we're up against, like they know the long game. So it's like you draw a map that is problematic. You're asked to redo it. It's still problematic. It's like, you know, that there just might not be enough time to redo it and you'll get what you want in 18. And then like, let's see. And what they're saying in the Carolina is that they actually want the Supreme Court to weigh in before they redraw anything. And it's like, well, that could take us a whole nother year. So by the time we get even close to 2020, we could be in the exact same position where we're up against a deadline to be able to redraw the line. And I just hadn't, you know, I'd heard about the North Carolina map before and I just thought it was resolved. Like I thought that they just redrew it and it was done because the court had already said it was problematic. But lo and behold, 2018 will have the same map. It's interesting because sometimes, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, so, you know, DeRay said that this was clearly racist. And I think sometimes people are like, even people who are sympathetic to the things that we're talking about can be like, oh, okay, well, like maybe it's gerrymandered or maybe it's unfair, but like saying it's racist, like that might be a lot. Like, I don't know if we should be like throwing out the term loosely like that, but I think it's, it's in- essential for people to understand that this court found that North Carolina ma- lawmakers specifically requested data on racial differences in voting behavior in the state. And this data showed that African-Americans disproportionately lacked the most common forms of photo ID, which are those issued by the Department of Motor Vehicles. And so what happens is that you create 
programs uh, by which, you know, you institute voter ID or and you look to see which neighborhoods African-Americans live in as compared to their white counterparts. And you as the the judge in this case said you the the provisions, quote, target African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Right. So it's all of these things that are North Carolina Republican lawmakers looking around to see in what way, like, what are the voting patterns? What are the voting districts? What are the sort of uh, demographic and geographic and uh, sort of makeups of of this community? And then exploiting and targeting Black people in the most pernicious and and directive ways. So when so when DeRay says that this is racist, like this is what this is what that looks like, right? And and you know this is basic at this point, but. But it does not necessitate any of these people having animus toward black people personally, right? That that is not how racism operates in a in a systemic level. What it is is saying black people disproportionately lack photo ID, so we're going to make it so that you have to have an ID to vote. What it is is saying black people live in this neighborhood or black people live in this community. Okay, we're going to draw the districts so that we make it so that we limit the the power of their their voting constituency. So, I think it's just super important for people to understand the like myriad of ways that folks on the right are are and have been engaging for a long time with these sort of tactics uh, that are specifically meant to harm a specific community of folks. You know, what we have to remember is that North Carolina is to modern day voter suppression what Mississippi was to Jim Crow. It is ground zero, the very center of this issue and the place where it is as bad as it could possibly be. And, you know, North Carolina has been at this for some years now. They have continuously rolled back early voting. They have purged voters from the rolls. They have um, limited the kinds of identification that can be used uh, when people go to vote, uh, which in and of itself is a poll tax, in addition to all of the things that have already just been described and all those things have been done in a particularly targeted way. And so conquering voter suppression everywhere is critical. Conquering it in North Carolina could be the domino that causes voter suppression tactics to be ended everywhere because it is just that bad in the state of North Carolina. I spent a few weeks in North Carolina during the 2016 presidential election after I had endorsed Hillary Clinton in the general. Um, and, and I spent all of almost all of my time on the ground in North Carolina, uh, going from college to college. They have a number of HP in that state, doing phone banking with John Lewis and the LGBTQ community rallies. Every city you could think of, I was probably there. I ate cookout almost every single night when I was in North Carolina. It was not great for my diet, but the people of North Carolina are thoughtful and brilliant and resilient um, and powerful. And it was so frustrating to know just how much power and intention I witnessed when I was with the people in North Carolina, only to see those same kind of voter suppression tactics, the same kind of polling closures, the same same kind of restriction from early uh, voting access happen in 2016. Uh, and so to see this continue to get delayed in this particular place is not just heartbreaking, it's infuriating. And if we can get it right in North Carolina, then it's a signal that we can get it right in everywhere else. But until we actually conquer the 
varied and pernicious ways that voter suppression occurs in places like North Carolina, we're not actually going to see an end to it. So it's not just a gerrymandered map. It's not just early voting. It's not just IDs. It's not just polling place closures. It's not just purging voters. It's all of those things that add up to a place where people are not actually being treated equally under the law. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And here's my conversation with Anand G, the author of the book, Winners Take All. 
Anand, thanks so much for joining us today on Patsy of the Viewable. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about your book, Winners Take All, which just came out. Came out uh, August 28th. I'm excited to talk about it. I have a lot of questions. I read the book on my phone, so I'll be looking at my phone for a little bit. But the first is like, why did you, why this? Why this topic? You've written a lot. You used to be a columnist. You still write at a host of places. Why this topic? I think we live in an age that is a little mystifying to me in that it's an age of a lot of generosity and elite social concern and and rich people trying to make a difference and give their money away and elite college graduates you know determined to to help faraway countries and change the world and yet the persistent staggering fact of the age is that this is a as unequal a time has has existed in America in 100 years uh, as um difficult a time to to get ahead and to actually achieve the American dream as has existed since the 1930s. And we, I was just fascinated by how is it that we live in this age where rich people seem to be doing so much to quote unquote change the world and make the world a better place from Silicon Valley to, you know, big foundations to Wall Street people who, you know, go to the Robin Hood gala. And yet, it's been an age of so many different injustices, some of which you've been such a leader in highlighting and others of which, um, you know, people like Thomas Piketty have been highlighting in terms of the economics. Um, and I wanted to kind of understand the relationship between this kind of elite helpfulness and this elite hoarding. And I decided to go on a journey. I'm, an, I'm a reporter at heart. Um, I don't, I'm not a pontificator. I try to get into rooms where the things are happening that I want to understand. And I spent a few years in rooms with very rich and powerful people trying to understand how they try to change the world and how the ways in which they try to change the world actually uphold the power structure that keeps them on top. Now, I wanted to ask about the access because you weren't in these rooms as like a reporter reporting. That wasn't, I think, how how people experienced you in those spaces. You were there as a participant, as somebody who was sort of like invited to summits here. You read about summit. You were invited to ask when you were invited to, to be a part of these. And that is in and of itself, it's like own sort of privilege. Um, how do you process that? Like being in, being in an elite space, like being one of the people, you know, not everybody can go to these things in the first place. Like, how do you make sense of that? Well, I mean, to be clear, a lot of the, the genesis of the idea came from being in those spaces as a, as a participant or an observer, but once I started working on the book, I went to a lot more spaces to report the book as a reporter. When I went to CGI, was, I just meant like you weren't invited. They weren't like inviting you like as a reporter. Please write about us. No, they were inviting. <laughs> if people want you to write about them, certainly. you probably shouldn't. And one of the things that has always bothered me, and I've been a perpetrator of this, is that when people write about inequality and poverty of any kind, whether it's in India when I was a foreign correspondent or here, we often tend to write about the powerless side of the equation. Why? Because they don't have publicists. They tend to be open with their lives. Um, we write about, when we write about poverty, we tend to write about the poor. When we write about inequality, we write about those shut out. And, you know, one of the kind of revelations that I had along the way is that's like, you know, that's writing about the people living in the house, not the architects of the house. And actually, if you want to understand poverty, you need to study rich people because they set up the system in which those people are poor. If you want to understand a racial caste system, you don't only document what's happening to the people hemmed in by that caste system. You write about the people who thought that was the best idea. 
And of course, we don't do that often in, in journalism because people don't have access to those spaces because those people do have publicists. And so I, you know, I'm not a plutocrat myself, but I had access to those worlds as a journalist who kind of exists as many do, and I know as you do, on the margins of a lot of those spaces. And I could get into those rooms that maybe other journalists couldn't. And I decided that the best use of what I could do, because I just felt we were living in the middle of a big con, was to use my chance to get into those spaces, to tell the truth about what I saw, and to understand um, understand how it is that we live in this age that's been so punishing to so many Americans and has filled this country on the left and right with so much anger and so much of a feeling that things are rigged and things then the public interest can never win. Now, what would you say would be like a common thread through all of the spaces you've been in? Or is there a common thread? Like, I don't, I want to talk about sort of the the big ideas that you talk about in the book and like those sort of things. But is it, do the spaces all have something in common when you get these like elite people all together around dinner or like somebody at sea or like, I don't know. The I think the biggest thread is the, the faith in the possibility and in the fact that they are doing well by doing good. You hear that phrase all the time. It also kind of goes by the term win-win. And at the heart of whether it's Davos or CGI or the Aspen Institute or Summit at Sea or any of these other spaces, there's a sense that one can be a winner of this age and be an ally of the losers at the same time with no tension between that. One can profit from a bad system and be a revolutionary against that system. One can make a difference and make a killing at the same time. And look, there are individual issues and certain causes where that's true. You can make a lot of money at Goldman Sachs and make some difference on some particular issue. But what I started to find as I did this investigation and spent time with people in this world as a reporter was that a lot of these people are fighting on both sides of a war and they are causing by day the problems they seek to solve by night at galas. They are, you know, if you're Goldman Sachs, you are contributing to a financial crisis that caused, you know, in its totality, millions of people to lose their homes or their jobs or their livelihoods or their marriages. People died prematurely because of it. Goldman Sachs ended up paying, you know, billions of dollars in fines to the Department of Justice for admitting to fraudulent activity and basically pushing on its clients toxic mortgage products that it knew to be toxic and that it avoided for its own books. Um, and then Goldman Sachs turns around and has the GS Gives program and the 10,000 Women program and all these other programs, Green Bonds, Impact Investment Fund, all this stuff where frankly, on a much smaller scale than the financial crisis, it helps a few people here and there and really helps them and really makes a difference in their lives. But the taking is is lubricated by that giving. And there's a simple piece of evidence for that that I find very striking, which is in November 2007 when Goldman was aware that negative stories were coming out in the New York Times about how it had dodged this crisis and you know, others hadn't. Um, it really, there's these emails where it shows that it's trying to push on this New York Times reporter, please include Goldman Sachs gives in this story. In other words, these people understand very well that philanthropy kind of leavens the 
leavens the picture a little bit and might help you, you know, that you can kind of hurt people and harm the society and then do just enough good to kind of make people feel like, okay, well, you know, you're trying to do something good. There's a part in the book where you talk about a set of people, um, a set of people in Silicon Valley who act as insurgents, but really are the people who are like holding the strings of power. Do you think that that is unique to Silicon Valley or, or did you just pull them out in this section of the book where you talk about the guy who like sort of proxies himself as an insurgent, but is invested in all these companies that don't do right by people? Like is Silicon Valley unique in this moment or did you just sort of highlight them for this, that part of the book? I think Silicon Valley is not unique in the following way. And in, in part of that larger story of doing well by doing good, thinking you're changing the world while in fact grabbing wealth and power. Can you explain doing well by doing good to people who have never heard that before? Doing well for yourself by doing good for others. Okay. Or doing good for others by doing well for yourself. People say that. You got Tom's shoes, you make a profit selling Tom's shoes maybe, but someone else gets some shoes. Anybody who's listening to this who's bought one of those red iPhone cases, you know, they're selling, Apple's selling the case, they're making some money, they're donating the profits. And some other, someone's getting help down the chain. Got it. Um, and this whole idea, you know, impact investment funds, right? You yes. make a return, but there's some social benefit. All of these things, philanthropy, you know, you make your money, good for you. You take some of that money, you give it back. It's doing well by doing good. And this has become a mantra of our age. And what it, you know, what it does is substitute generosity for justice. Because justice. Wait, let me let me process that. Substitute generosity for justice. Okay, I'm here. I'm ready. Justice often requires the powerful having to lose something, give up something, get out of the way, stop standing on someone's back. Mm -hmm. Generosity is like keep standing on the back, keep blocking (laughs) my way, keep doing what you do. You do you, Mister Powerful. Yeah. But like, throw me a bone. And. I think there's just an enormous difference between the powerful continuing to stand on people's back and throwing them a bone versus the powerful getting off their backs. And in our age, generosity of that kind, where the system doesn't change, but scraps are thrown, has become this very powerful idea. So I think in that Silicon Valley, at that general level, is just one example of something that I also see in New York philanthropy, and I also see in the rise of the social enterprise and the impact investment movement and all of these things. Where Silicon Valley is unique is there is a true story that you can tell about tech that these people started as rebels against power. And like you believe that is honest. I believe it was honest at a moment in time. Got it. They were hackers and tinkerers once. They were not the establishment, you know, maybe not in your and my lifetime. Well, actually, even in your and my lifetime. There was a time when they were up against the man. Right. Um they were up again. I mean, if you think about, if you went go to 1990, right? Think about the power of a company like GE or Exxon, right? Versus like these people doing whatever it was they were doing in tech. I mean, today that picture. What is Exxon when it when right. you compare it to Facebook? Like, there's been this reversal. They were these weirdos who were building stuff that they spoke about in these larger civilizational terms, but were just you know. We, we didn't quite know how to process them. And so I think, I just say that to say, I think there's a, and you, know, and you had Bill Gates and others telling a story that has become very influential that tech is inherently leveling. 
In, a, in other words, tech has a bias. It's inbuilt. It's a, it's a leveler. The more of it there is, the more level things will get. Now, if you study history, you know there is no inherent anything. Right. Everything can be used by anyone for anything. And tools that are good can be exploited by government. The same tool that allowed you to lead protests is being used by the Chinese government to prevent people from protesting. Right. That's just how humanity works. Right. The tools you use don't have a bias towards allowing Black Lives Matter to flourish. It, they, they're just tools to be used by who has power and who's able to use them in a way that is perhaps more effective than others and who's able to outrun others. And so these guys started with that story. And, you know, by the way, some of that world in Silicon Valley had its origins in San Francisco and like the hippie movement, and there were intersections and counter, they were countercultural people at a certain moment in time. The problem is they became the establishment. They are the robber barons of today. And you think they're in denial of that? Correct. Because they have this self-image of countercultural hackers, renegades, that frankly, the CEO of Goldman Sachs could never have. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, you know you're powerful if you run a big bank. Right. <laughs> you know you're powerful if you make like 8 million cars a year. Right. Right? I mean, you may want to fight this regulation or that, but you don't think you're not a powerful person. You definitely don't think you're the underdog. Correct. Right. I don't think the people who run Walmart like, I, I don't like a lot of their practices, but I don't think they're in denial about who they are. Right. Whereas when I go to the Valley, I get a sense of people who think that they are earnest, well-meaning people who are trying to make the world a better place as fast as possible, who are trying to liberate everyone in the world, who basically have invented these bolt cutters that can cut every you know, chain of tyranny wherever it lurks. And that people like you and me asking them questions or government regulators going after them are basically slowing them down from their mission of emancipation. And why are we doing that? Because they are emancipating people. Right. And I think that actually makes them much more dangerous and complicated to deal with than just merely greedy people. I think we kind of actually know what to do with merely greedy people. We tax them, we regulate them, we could do a better job of those things. But these Silicon Valley people, I mean, you have someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who's allowed our election to be compromised who has, in many ways, you know, gutted a lot of local media, in particular's ability to have a business model, um, and who now turns around and says he wants to be in charge of our schools, even though he failed to change the schools in Newark after dumping a lot of money into it and insisting on a certain amount of power that he had to decide what schools should be like in Newark. Um, deciding he wants to end all the diseases, all of them, just all of them. That was Gates too. Gates is ending. I don't think Gates has done all the diseases, but, <laughs> but he's older. Um, perhaps a little more, you know, uh, experienced in the impossibility of doing these. How do you things. think that? How do you think that gender and race factors into this? Let me let me say this. One of the things I so I wrote about people in very powerful institutions, and I was particularly drawn to, and I, I guess people were also drawn to participating in this book, if they had some amount of doubt about the institutions they're part of, right? If, you've, if you truly deeply believe in these institutions, you're not going to talk to me about, you know, uh, my book about the elite charade of changing the world, <laughs> although it didn't details, have that details. subtitle at the time. So I talked to people who were, I, you know, had a certain kind of double consciousness about being a philanthropist or being in Silicon Valley or being, you know, in these spaces. And one of the things I found was that the people who are on, as a matter of personal identity, on the wrong end of a major power equation, have much clearer double consciousness about 
these issues mm. than people who don't. In other words, the women, the people of color. And, and so one of the dynamics in my book is um, the white guys struggle less with these things and are a little more convinced, you know, that the world will be a better place if they're left to do their, their giving or their disrupting or whatever it is. And a lot of the women um, and people of color in my book, I think, have a feeling that they believe in the spaces they're in. But they also, from just personal life, understand bullshit narratives right. articulated by powerful people to keep other people down. And yeah. they just know that in their bones. And therefore, they're able to actually look at themselves in a way that was, for me as a writer, that's what you want. You want someone who's actually able to look at themselves. And so I think about someone like Lori Tish, who's a you know billionaire heir to a big American fortune, her name painted on buildings across New York City, um, but who talked very openly about her guilt. And sometimes she feels like she can use her fortune to do great good, and often she feels like she should not have that fortune. And she, you know, she told me the story about a friend who asked her, like, when, when are you going to get rid of that guilt? And she says, hopefully never, because that's my compass. You know, that's a way of both kind of being inside yourself and defensive of yourself and being outside yourself and looking at yourself that's very valuable when you're a writer to have in a character. But also I think, you know, she said to me, you know, she, I think she was the only woman in that generation of Tisha's and, you know, was often asked, like, which Tish did you marry? And people didn't, couldn't believe that, like, there was, like, a woman in that family. And so having been on the wrong end of a certain power equation, it gave her a wokeness about, yeah. you know, the side of power where she was on the, the, the good side. Um, you know, in terms of race, one of the most, I think, compelling characters in the book is Darren Walker, who runs the Ford Foundation, and who probably is the closest proxy for, you know, where I land on some of these issues. Darren, you know, was born on the wrong end of many power equations. He was born extremely poor. Um, he was born in a, uh, in a very small town in Texas. He's black. He's gay. I mean, he interestingly had this experience where he said, you know, he came up in the philanthropic world and he said, you know, by the time I came up, like black wasn't a problem, but like gay was a shock, you know, and he went through, but he's been on a lot of rooms where he is powerful and he's been in a lot of rooms where he has an awareness of being on the wrong end of one of those equations or being different from a lot of the other people in the room. And being head of the Ford Foundation is basically being the king of, you know, philanthropy, a stan. I mean, it's, it's, that's the job and he gives an enormous amount of money away. But more importantly, what he thinks and what he says is a kind of cue to everybody who gives money away in the world. I mean, he's, when Mark Zuckerberg wants to figure out how do I get rid of this fortune, you call Darren Walker. I mean, Darren Walker is, the, is a kind of consigliere for many, many people who want to give. And because I think, and I, I think he would agree with this, I think his background gave him, again, that double consciousness of, yeah, I believe in this world. I believe in what the Ford Foundation is doing. And I believe in philanthropy and the possibility of giving back and making the world better and fighting for social justice, even from this perch of privilege. However, I think his background also caused him to question the great taboo of the philanthropy world, which is you do not talk about how the money was made if you're going to get to give away that money. That's, that's the deal in philanthropy, 
right? And Darren, you know, spent a long time rising up through the ranks before he got vocal on that. Um, there's this notion that sociologists have idiosyncrasy credits that you kind of got to earn your, earn your right to go rogue. Mm-hmm. If you go rogue when you're 22, a newly hired employee, you may not, you know, stay at the firm very long. Yes. Um, and he decided to spend his credits when he got to the helm of the Ford Foundation, and he made this very dramatic statement in the fall of 2015, in which he called for a new gospel of wealth, basically overturning um, Andrew Carnegie's late 19th century, uh, you know, tract called Wealth, in which he laid down this notion, essentially of extreme giving. Sorry, in which he laid down this notion of extreme taking, followed by a period of extreme giving. Carnegie really believed, like, you got to be ruthless. You got to pay as little as possible. You got to really screw your workers. But then, with all those profits, you should keep as little as possible for yourself and build libraries and build all this private stuff to help others. And, and that schism of be ruthless here and then be generous here has kind of become the American schism. The only problem is a lot of Americans today follow the ruthless part of the equation, but they actually don't give as generously as Carnegie did. Right. I mean, Carnegie felt it was actually irresponsible to like hold on to your own wealth. That's not something that you know many rich people today believe. Um, and Darren, I think very much because of gender and sexuality and poverty and understanding class, um, said, this charter's wrong. And he called for a new charter that was built on Martin Luther King's understanding that philanthropy itself is laudable, but you can't ignore the circumstances of economic injustice that make philanthropy necessary. And he called for basically a new gospel of wealth. And I don't think he would have done that if he hadn't been able to see the world through lenses that many of the kinds of people who ascend to those jobs don't have available to them. How do you make sense of somebody like Darren and not just thinking about the Ford Foundation, but you think about the big ones, Gates, you think about um, MacArthur, OSI, da-da-da. So even if you get a person like Darren who gets it at the top, uh, that so many people still experience like the program officers as the exact people that you write about in other parts of, that like they sort of got to these elite places and they really are just gatekeepers for the eliteness. So like you get a Darren who like has this vision and da da, but the people actually decide where so much of the money goes, like aren't those people will be my experience. How do we actually change philanthropy at the root? Not just wishing for a million Darrens. I would say two things. One, I think the biggest way to change philanthropy is for there to be less of it in a society that we're working right. Mm. There'd be less money to give away. Okay. Because people would already have it. It'd be in wages. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. It would be spent on giving women maternity leave. Right. It would be spent on making sure everybody gets $25,000, $30,000 a year per pupil spending at public schools, not just people who live in you know, Marin and Greenwich. Right. Um, it would mean you know, actually having investments in retraining and, you know, late-in-life education to help all these people who've lost their jobs of all races because of deindustrialization. Um, it would mean doing a bunch of things that would cost the winners money, would soothe pain, save lives, uh, truly actually make America a better place, um, and would leave less money to be given away, would leave less wealth lying around to be, to be spent. The reality is if Mark Zuckerberg you know, actually policed abuse properly and and actually, you know, had adequate security. It's not like they can't do that. It just costs money. It's just it's just less 
profit. Like, come on, you can hire a million people, two million. I mean, with a company that big, like every problem is solvable at the end of the day. You just hire people. They don't have an office in all these countries where they are causing mayhem and people to kill each other through rumors that are being spread on Facebook. They, they won't even open an office. Like, just open an office. That costs money. So for the winners to, to actually solve some of these social problems, it would just mean less money and they'd have less to give away. Um, but I think the deeper answer to your question, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right that sometimes you get this dynamic where you have a leader like Darren who wants to, to push for a certain kind of change and who has his own limitations, frankly, in what he's able to push for, but who, yes, has this entrenched bureaucracy. And I think when he wrote that letter calling for a new gospel of wealth, he was probably speaking very much to those kind of program offices and trying to shake them up. But those assumptions are very hard to beat. However, I think there's another dynamic, which is almost the opposite of that, which is one of the things I have found, and I've kind of become this like unwitting confession booth for people who work in these spaces and who like message me privately and email me and tell me about their, you know, private experience of working in these do-gooding spaces, um, is that you actually have a sizable minority of people who work in these spaces. And by these spaces, I mean Google and Facebook, I mean philanthropy, I mean impact investing funds, nonprofits where you're helping poor people and raising money from rich people and you're caught in between them, all of the above. I get confession after confession from people who work in these spaces, often people who, as I said earlier, are personally acquainted with being on the wrong end of power, even though they were also personally acquainted with being on the right end of many power distributions, which is why they're there who tell me that they fully agree with the idea that a lot of this is an elite charade and who are lost and who wonder every day in particular whether the good they're doing is basically taking resources from a company like Google or Facebook or Apple and making a change that's actually helping people or whether the little change they're doing is actually just like protecting Google from you know like antitrust scrutiny or protecting Apple from you know, a tax issue or whatever. And so I think one of the things that's become clear to me just having the book out there in the world um, a few days in public and over the last few months for some of the people in these spaces that we sent it to is that I think there's an opportunity to organize this significant minority. This significant minority is like the one person at the table of eight people at that meeting at Amazon or at, you know, the Gates Foundation who maybe has misgivings, who maybe feels that the conversation's going in the wrong place. But it's hard for them on their own as a one person at that table to say that. They're often a young person, or they're often the only minority or the only woman. That's why they maybe have that perspective. I think when you write a book, you're giving people a text that is external to them, external to the firm, so that in a way a lot of these people feel compelled to kind of respond to. And basically, because I know you're a, such a tweet guy, you're giving these people an opportunity to retweet something instead of having to tweet it themselves, right? You're giving that person an opportunity to say, hey, this thing's out there. And, you know, I think it raised some interesting points that we should talk about, as opposed to forcing that young person or that minority who sees things differently to, like, go up against the entire power structure of their organization. Um, so I think there's a big opportunity there for those renegades to, like, find each other. And maybe for people, you know, more creative at that than me, people like you, to actually connect them to each other and find ways for them to become a stealth movement within a lot of these spheres of power. I don't think that's the only way we're going to actually get real change in America, but I, but I actually don't discount 
the power of people who are lurking within these organizations who have a very different view than the orthodoxy of the organizations, but who don't quite know how to act on it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. One of the questions I have is about age. What I think I've seen is that there are people who get older and then they're like, I need to give away my money, da 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 Do you think that that will factor in with like the Silicon Valley? The Silicon Valley people are relatively young. You know, they're like a young crowd. A lot of the new money people in not just Silicon Valley, but sort of like the podcast millionaires and the Twitch kids and the YouTube, you know, like they're all... They're like, you know, under 30, right? They're like 30, 35, under 30. Do you have any sense that their approach to this will be different? I think it's easy. I mean, I think I would actually be wary. I mean, I think just because they're young and hip and cool. Wary of this premise. Yes. I think because they're young and hip and cool and some of the things they've invented are young and hip and cool, it's easy to imagine that they'll be woker than, you know, the previous generation. But I don't know. I mean, a lot of them... A lot of the people who you describe who are particularly young and have made money are from Silicon Valley. And I think in many ways, they are more difficult on this issue because they're so convinced that simply doing what they do it's like a good is social a, justice. Got it, got it, got it. That's and so it actually, you know, I'll give you an example. That's you know, interesting. A friend of mine used to work at the Wall Street Journal. You know, Wall Street Journal is unique among American newspapers that has individual reporters like assigned to companies, right? Because that's what it does. And this editor told me, you know, one of the interesting things is most companies in America, GE, GM, Walmart, these old line companies, Goldman Sachs, they understand, just like the White House understands, not this White House, but White Houses in general, they understand the game. They understand it's your job to investigate me as a reporter. It's your job to write critical stories. And it's my job to spin you and you know, try to get you to write more positive stories. But, like, they fundamentally accepted the legitimacy of the job of the reporter to, like, poke and the job of them to deflect. And they understood the relationship. And this editor told me, you know, with Silicon Valley, it was, like, mystifying for the journal because these 
companies would be like, why would you write? Like, why would you write that story? Like, we're trying to make the world, like, why would you write a critical story about it? Like, do you not want the world to be a better place as fast as possible? Reporters would get banned from things. I mean, they'd have to move reporters around because, you know, you write one story. Like, there is something about that world that is so messianic in its conviction that it wants to make things better. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, that world is like very woke on a certain set of issues. And I think that can be very seductive. But it actually has some very dark views when it comes to actually believing in common institutions that can actually make people's lives better and are not run by them. Part of the problem in that world is they love to run their own helpfulness. Um, A guy I wrote about, another one of these folks with an ability to kind of be in this world but also see outside of it was Emmett Carson, who used to be at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation and then left as part of this, you know, big sexual harassment drama over the last year. Um, And he said, you know, he was at major foundations um, elsewhere in the country before he got to Silicon Valley. And he, you know, he said, I've worked on injustice my whole life, injustice, inequality, those kind of issues. He said, as soon as I got to the Valley, it became very clear to me, you can't talk about injustice. You can't talk about inequality because that feels to these people like you're accusing them of something. So you got to talk about opportunity. You got to talk about, you know, spreading opportunity. And he kind of made the point, which is very helpful for me, that, you know, a lot of the folks in the Valley are absolutely willing to help out the underdogs, but they have a couple conditions. It needs to be with their consent. They need to run the program. It needs to be voluntary. It cannot be done through government against their will. It needs to have a lot of kind of gratitude for them. It needs to be like, thank you so much for giving this money. Here's your name on the thing. It needs to really like pay obeisance to them for for their generosity. And they want to like micromanage the details of it. And, you know, like, sorry for being old fashioned, but that's just really anti-democratic. I don't know who these, I mean, you taught in public schools. Like, I don't understand who these people are to have one bit of say about how our public schools are run. I don't care that you made like a looping video app or whatever. (laughs) Like, why do you get to say anything, a single thing about our public schools besides the one vote you have whenever we have an election? You know, I've been in some of the rooms that you write about. What about the like government people who get invited? The like, those rooms are not only filled with the gazillionaires, right? They're also the people like you get in the room. And last time I checked, you weren't a billionaire. I'm certainly not. (laughs) What do you make of those people? You know, I think one of the reasons that I coined this idea of like market world to describe this set of people and this set of interwoven institutions and this kind of geographic sphere of, you know, this archipelago of conferences and all this stuff is it's not just a monolithic group, as you say. It absolutely, there are absolutely people in the charity world and academia. There's kind of journalists, as you say, there's, there's people in government who come in, you know, if you look at something like CGI, I mean, there's people from all kinds of the Clinton Global Initiatives, people from all kinds of, they definitely have government people, labor people, activists, a lot of corporate people, et cetera. But here's what happens. The issue is not that those people are always out of those spaces. The issue is when you decide to kind of migrate a problem from being solved in the public sphere, what do we do about public education and have public bodies deliberating that, whether it's a local community meeting or Congress or whatever, when you shift that to like, let's have, you know, 
people decide that at CGI or at Summit at Sea or whatever, yeah, there may be government people in the room, but that's not a governmental space. There's no accountability. That's totally private. No one has any right to know what happened in there, first of all. Second of all, the government people are there to give advice and maybe implement, right? But the basic decision is yay or nay to a particular program. Right? So here's an idea for a program. Are we going to do it or are we going to not going to do it? And the biggest factor there is, is this program going to be funded or not? When it's not being funded by the people, it's being funded by these private actors. And what that does, and I think one of the least understood aspects of why this, this age of philanthropic generosity is problematic, is that it basically gives them what I call the winner's veto. Any kind of social change that is not congenial to winners is going to be a no-no. And any kind of social change that is fine with them is fine with them, right? Um, so if you think about you know, some of the issues that you, the, some of the breadth of the issues you've worked on, I'm curious for your take on it. Part of how I see it is if I'm like a rich person in Connecticut, can I get on board with Black Lives Matter fighting police brutality in places that feel like far away to me? Yeah, sure. That doesn't really necessarily hurt me if I'm like a rich white person in Connecticut. Right. Right? Do I want public schools in Connecticut to be funded equally? Mm, that's a little tricky. That's a little trickier. That hurts. Right? Because it might require like some personal relationships to be flexed. No, it just might make the homes in Greenwich less valuable because the schools would fall down to the mean of Oh, got it. If we didn't make, you know, if we didn't I mean right now like we give you the special perk if you have a rich house in a rich neighborhood, we give you like better schools than other people, as you know. And it's, right. there's no moral. I mean, I'm sure you would have found it very hard to explain to the students you taught why we do that. Um, and the reality is, what I'm interested in is, you know, wealthy white donors might be happy to donate to a certain kind of cause and not another, and not another, even if, frankly. Millions and millions more people are directly affected by the latter than the former. What about the in-kind support? And I ask in the context of public education because what, what you find happen is that some people are definitely donating money, right? But a lot of these people are coming in being like, well, I built this thing. Like, I'll come help you with your IT, right? Or like, I built this thing and like, I'll come help you run it like a business, right? Like, that has become a new wave. Do you see that being any different than money? I think that's that's fine. I think that's very different than, you know, I mean, that's that doesn't feel, unless I'm not understanding it, like an exertion of power over deciding what the priorities of education are in a in a district. That doesn't feel like... Mark Zuckerberg dumping $100 million into you know, the schools of Newark, a city he had not visited, and deciding that that was going to be remade. Um, you know, My concern, I have many concerns about this kind of giving, but one of them is just a concern from the standpoint of democracy. I, just, I don't know why we would go to the effort we do and have gone to the effort we've gone to to be a one-person, one-vote society if we create this like parallel fourth branch of government where these people get like a gazillion votes and we get none. Like, Are there any bright spots? Yes. I think Donald Trump has... He's not a bright spot. I think he is causing a bright spot. Oh, I think Donald Trump has revealed that a society is only as good as its public institutions. It's only as good as its public discourse. You can't 
just be, I mean, everything else in America is working fine right now, right? Like Facebook and these companies, you know, they're thriving and business is good and Wall Street's good and people's, you know, 401ks are growing. And yet many of us realize that when your public institutions are as degraded as ours are, like you need transformational change. And I think a lot of us also understand that Donald Trump is not the beginning of the problem of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the culmination. Like we had to have been sick a lot longer than we realized before we went to the doctor, right? Donald Trump is like, you know, the full stage cancer. But actually looking back, we should have paid attention to a lot of aches and pains that we didn't detect. And a lot of people who were telling us in a lot of ways that life wasn't working for them and we ignored them and Rich explained to them that no, in fact, things were great. Trade was great, um, you know, their, their schools were fine. The resegregation of schools in a lot of places in America was totally fine. It was just, you know, part of how things are. And I think now we look back and say, gosh, we have this society like full of anger, full of a feeling on every side of the aisle. The one thing, you know, I don't know, 80% of Americans would probably agree is that the society feels rigged to them, right? And the good thing about the Trump era is I think it's actually exposed the bankruptcy of the fake change that got us into this mix. And I, I wouldn't say I'm, you know, I, I think it's uh, guaranteed or even probable, but I think it's possible we will muster the will to come out of this Trump era and make the Trump era the end of the era of fake change and, and lip service and pseudo gestures and billionaire saviors. And I actually think there's a reasonable shot that what follows the Trump era is an age of reform in American life, much as we had a hundred years ago, where we actually built and rebuilt the basic civilizational infrastructure of this society and the rules of the road and the common institutions that allow um, people to flourish rather than simply tweak around the edges and, and, and have rich people throw scraps down from the top of the mountain. One of the questions that I ask everybody as we come to an end is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I think, you know, the most important advice is a very basic piece of advice that you learn as a reporter that at least in my experience, you forget as often as you remember it. And then you have to keep being reminded of, which is to just take your notebook, take your recorder, get out there, talk to people, see things. And particularly now in this moment in America, where we're so divided from each other, I think we are, our country is partly in the state it's in because we just don't know each other anymore. We don't, you know, I just hear when I travel, Americans like so mischaracterize each other. I mean, just don't, don't understand just at the level of like an empirical level, do not actually know what's going on with each other, don't have a good read for what each other's values and motivations are. Um, and so, you know, I could have written this book from a standpoint of just pontificating a set of beliefs, but I tried to get into those rooms. And I would just say like the value of, in my profession of reporting um, and just report, 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 go talk to people, get there, get in the room, see what's going on. Don't give people your ideas, give people what you've seen. People, people hugely undervalue, people hugely overvalue. Bigly. The importance of their ideas to other people. People hugely undervalue the importance of their experiences to other people. Um, so go collect experiences. And what is something that you learned in this process that you didn't know going in? You clearly went in with like a print, like some sort of idea mm -hmm. what you were looking for. But is there anything that you, you're like, I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't know that. The biggest thing I learned 
was that many, certainly not all, but many decent people can uphold an indecent system. That an indecent system doesn't require that everybody be indecent. It simply requires that people rationalize, fall prey to justifications, turn the other way, tell themselves stories. And you can get to a place where uh, great injustice is tolerated um, by people who are good family members, who are trying to do the best at their jobs, who think that they are making the world better in some modest way or some grandiose way, and who are in fact contributing to the problem. And that was an education for me. And it, you know, I think um, made me realize that simply getting rid of some villains is not how you solve this kind of problem. This is the kind of problem you have when your culture is warped in a way that it tells lots of people, decent people, faulty stories that cause them to think that generosity is the same thing as justice, that cause them to think that they are changing the world when in fact they're keeping it the same, that cause them to feel like they're making a difference when they're in fact just kind of protecting their opportunity to make a killing. And so, you know, it, if, if, if that's right, what it really requires is, and what this book is calling for, is not just vigorous public action to kind of renew um, and restore the American dream, but a shift in our culture and our language and our values so that we don't valorize phony attempts to make the world better and we actually lift up and celebrate movements and people who are actually working to make this country better the only way it's ever really gotten better, which is from below. And uh, where can people go to follow you? They can go on Twitter to Anand Writes, A-N-A-N-D-W-R-I-T-E-S. Um, that's probably the best, best you know, central um, pod for everything. And um, and look, I I hope you'll consider consider reading this book. Buy it's, the book. Buy the book. If you wonder. How do we get into this era that we're in? If you wonder, how do we get out of this era that we're in? And if you wonder, as I hear so many people do, how do what, what can I do? How do I make an impact on the scale I can? Um, I hope you'll consider this book because I think at the end of the day, one thing we're actually very united on as Americans is we need very serious transformational change in this country. We have huge disagreements about what that is. But I think we agree we need transformational change and that we've lost the ability to make it. And I hope this helps people figure out how to make that kind of change again. Boom. Well, thank you for joining us today on Pod to the People. We can see you're a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. This is so fun. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? 
Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.